Let's look together this morning at Philippians chapter 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn there with me. If you don't, then the screen uh, behind me should have the text that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to read to you verses 12 through 30, so it's a pretty big chunk. And uh, that was just a beautiful song. Thank you for that, Robbie and Poppies. That was wonderful. Um, Philippians 2, 12 through 30. What I'm about to read to you, just in case you've forgotten, is a portion of a letter from home. It's God's word to you. You need it, and I need it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, excuse me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Lord, we all gather here because we are needy. Some of us need to know what's next. Some of us need to know what we need to do now. Some of us are not aware of how big and deep our need is. But as we sit here under your word, Lord, We all are needy. Cause our lives to connect with the truth that is here. Bring your truth to life in our lives. And may we realize that to live is Christ and to die is gain. For we will be with him forever. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of the operating truths of Christianity is this. We don't have all the information that we would like. 
but we do have all that we need. As you think about your life, I'm sure that you can think about your life from that vantage point. You always wish that you had more information. But what you're learning, if you're willing to think about the gospel and the word of God, what you're learning is that actually you have all that you need. But nevertheless, it creates this tension, doesn't it? We always want to know more information. We always do. As a matter of fact, this passage that we're looking at this morning is a great example of something that creates this tension between wishing that we had more information and yet struggling to understand that we have all that we need. The whole purpose of this section that we're looking at today, if you're the one that likes to highlight your Bible or write down the main thing or whatever it is, the whole point of this section is work out your salvation. That's what we're looking at. We always want to know more, but yet there's also a sense in which we have all that we need. And at times that tension then creates this gap in our lives, you know? And whenever that gap exists, it often exposes the dark and deep places in our hearts. Whenever we want to know more, but yet we're struggling with the fact that God tells us we have all we need, oftentimes that tension, that gap, causes us to think, well, I just want to walk away. If I only knew this, I would stay. If I only understood this, this, and this, and this, and this, then that would make sense to me, and everything with God would be perfect. Sometimes we just have this gap in our lives, and we just want to walk away. At other times, this gap is created makes us want to impose our view of life and our definition of terms onto God. As if to say, well, if he just knew more about what was going on in my life, then he might change things. But what's actually happening in these verses is that God is not pushing us away, nor is he giving us permission to impose what we want onto him and what he says. He's actually inviting us to marvel and revel. He's actually wanting us to delight in him. He's actually wanting us to sit and to think about our lives and his word and let his word and let the truth of his word, the gospel, the good news, wrestle with our lives and wrestle with our minds. He's wanting us to think. He's wanting us to receive. He's wanting us to wrestle with what his word says. You see, we're supposed to work out our salvation. And the verses break down pretty easily. Verses 12 through 19, he's talking about working out your salvation, you and God. And then the rest of verses 19 through 30 is actually showing how that works out between you and other people. Between us. You see, he begins by saying, work out your salvation. Now, what is so perhaps unique is that God doesn't specify anything as to the what we're supposed to do with our lives, does he? We're supposed to work out our salvation so we might naturally think, oh, okay, well, that's what this, this is what that means, and here's the list of what I'm supposed to do. But he doesn't do that at all. As a matter of fact, he doesn't give us any specifics about the what. He actually tells us, how we're supposed to do everything. Look at verse 14. Do all things. 
It sure would be nice if God says, work out your salvation. Here are the three steps. Here's what you're supposed to do, but he doesn't. He says, work out your salvation. What that means is that you have to do everything in a certain way. Listen to these phrases that he uses. Without grumbling or disputing. Did you see that? Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Do everything so that you may be blameless. That's also verse 14. Blameless and innocent. Do everything so that you're without blemish. Do everything so that you are holding fast, verse 16. You see, God says that we are to do everything without grumbling or disputing. We're not supposed to selfishly complain all the time. And we're not supposed to be impatient towards what we're not sure is next. We're not supposed to be impatient toward what is not clear to us. We're supposed to be blameless and innocent in everything that we do. That means that we're not supposed to add on when someone is putting someone else down. It means that we're supposed to be innocent, that we are supposed to live a life in which when the inconsistencies of our lives are exposed, we are supposed to live a life such that we acknowledge our inconsistencies, we admit our inconsistencies, and we seek forgiveness. You see, we're supposed to live a life because our lives are going to be exposed for all the ways in which we fall short of the glory of God, and we are supposed to live a life saying, yes, that's true. That's why I need the Lord Jesus. I admit that you're right. I admit that I was wrong. I confess that, and I seek forgiveness. That's what it means to live a life that is blameless and innocent, even without blemish. That means everything that we do is supposed to be in a Christ-like way. Even working out your salvation, did you notice what God tags onto the end of that? With fear and trembling. It's even telling us the how we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is not the fear of stepping on some spiritual IED. That we're afraid, wherever we step, we're just afraid, oh, this may be where God's just going to blow us up. That's not, supposed to, that's not how we're supposed to work out our salvation. We're not supposed to be afraid of what God might do to us. You see, when it says, work out your salvation, do all things with fear and trembling, it's actually saying that we are so sensitive in our lives that we don't want to offend God's heart because we know that he loves us. You see how much more complicated that is? To work out your salvation, to do everything in a certain way? That means in your relationships, in your marriages, in your, with your coworkers, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're supposed to do everything in these ways so that you're blameless, so that you're innocent, so that you're doing everything so that there's no blemish. No one could come and say to you, why are you doing this? And you will not admit it. And you will not acknowledge that you've fallen short. It means that our lives are supposed to be lived in a way in which we are sensitive toward God and sensitive toward what he wants because we're convinced that he loves us. You see, this is what Paul lays down. He says, work out 
what God is working in. That whole idea of the fact that we always wish that we would have more information and how that connects with the fact that God has said we have all that we need, that creates this gap, right? Here we have the fact that these two things are laid down. God is absolutely in control, and I am absolutely responsible. God says, work out what I am working in. Listen listen to the way that he describes this. Look in verse 12. Here's what we are supposed to do. Obey. Verse 12, work. Verse 14, do everything in such a way that verse 15 says we're blameless, we're holding fast to God's word. And this is what God does. God is at work. Look at verse 13. It's God who is at work. Verse 15, you are God's children. As a matter of fact, God is at work both in your willing and God is at work in your doing. So I'm supposed to work out. I'm responsible to work out. And yet God is here said to be at work in my willing and my doing. God is at work. You see, God is not saying, just get going. God is not saying, do this or else. God is not saying that he helps those who help themselves. He's not saying in working out your salvation that you do everything. He's not saying that you can fix all of your problems. He's not saying that you can cure all of your anxieties. He's not saying that you can fix yourself. He's not just, he's not just saying to us, get going. Nor is he saying, get out of the way. As if to say, I can't do anything. As if to say, my life with God is just me letting go and let God. He's saying something different, isn't he? See, maybe God is trying to get this into our minds and he's trying to get this into our hearts because we miss it all the time. We often think of our lives as, all right, well, I'm supposed to work out my salvation, so that means I better get going because everything depends on me. And if I just take God at his word, I can fix myself. I can fix everything that's wrong with me, and I can fix all the problems that surround me and all the potential problems that I could have. And other days we end up thinking, well, I can't do anything. I just need to let go and let God. And it's in the middle of that that God is saying, no, neither of those is right. He's trying to get us to understand that there is a gigantic difference between us doing something for God and doing something with God. You see, our lives are supposed to be lived in connection with God. So that everything that we're doing, we are acknowledging and admitting is with God. Remember? God doesn't have a mission for his people. God has a people for his mission. God is working in us and we are working out what God is working in. We are to live our whole lives as if we're making every decision, every plan, every struggle with 
God. Not so much for him, but with him. Then the Apostle Paul turns and he starts talking about our relationships with other people. You notice in verses 19 through 30 how he mentions Timothy and Epaphroditus. Both of those men were close with the Apostle Paul and they certainly were close with those who made up the Philippian church. Paul's saying that your relationships are central. He's saying that your relationships are central to getting the gospel into your life. Relationships are central to get the gospel deeper into your mind and deeper into your heart and deeper into your life. We need it. He even says that we're to honor such men. You see, we need to have people in our lives that we are deeply engaged with. We need to have people in our lives that we look up to. We need to have role models. We need to have leaders Our lives need to be connected with other people. Otherwise, we will never understand this whole working out of our salvation. We were never made to live our lives alone. Never. And sometimes we try. Sometimes when we get down and out, when we get hurt, when we get frustrated, we just think, I can just do this on my own. Well, you can't. Now, not everybody's going to be your best friend either. But you see, it would be impossible to live a blameless life. It would be impossible to do things without grumbling and complaining if you were disconnected from everybody virtually, wouldn't it? I mean, you could still grumble and complain if you're living by yourself. But it just magnifies all of that when you start living with other people and you start being engaged in their lives. And Paul is saying you need other people in your lives. We need to have leaders and role models. Our culture seems to think that role models are supposed to be a a very specific way. We live in a world in which leaders are just, they just, leaders just exist because they want to be admired. Do you know that? Maybe you can think of some leaders when all they want, they just want power and they just want to be admired. Sometimes other leaders just want to be obeyed. That's their style. They just make the law and expect everybody to fall in line. Sound like parenting sometimes? Sound like how we fall into temptation of thinking this is how we're supposed to lead? I just make the rules and boom, if I just make the right ones, everything falls into place. It's not right either. Other times, leaders are just flat out me monsters. You know that term? They're just all about themselves and one-upping everyone and everything. They want to be the center of attention. You see, maybe oftentimes what happens is that leaders just want everybody to want to be them. And they've gotten to a certain place in their life, and they think everybody should want to be me. Look how successful I am. I've done it all. See, what God is describing for us here is a very different profile of a leader a very different profile of a role model. When he lays out Timothy and he lays out Epaphroditus and brings those to our attention, what he's saying is these are models that are following the Lord Jesus Christ. These are leaders who are following the Lord Jesus. What that means is that their lives are centered on God. They're actually offering their lives 
They're giving their lives to others. Paul was giving his life for the church. He was giving his life to the glory of God. Epaphroditus was about to die because he was coming to deliver a message to the Apostle Paul from the church. He was offering himself. Timothy is described as someone who seeks the good and the welfare of those in the church. You see, they're not in it for themselves. They're not in it because they want everybody just to follow them. They're not in it because they think, well, if everybody just listened to what I have to say, this church would be great. You see, they're living a life in which their life is connected to the Lord Jesus, and they're saying, follow me as I follow Christ. They're not in it for their own gain. They're living their life, even offering their lives, even going into difficult, very hard situations for the betterment of others. And ultimately, for God's glory. And Paul is saying, you need leaders and role models in your life. You must have relationships with others. And they need to go deep. And that means it's going to be uncomfortable. And that means it's going to be strange. And trust me, it means you're going to figure out how hard you are to love. But Paul says you need it. We are to honor such men, is what he says. We are to honor such men. And we need to be living so close that you can see the rhythm of someone's life. That doesn't mean that all of you are always going to see everyone's rhythm of life. But you see, those here in Philippi could see the rhythm of life of Epaphroditus and of Timothy. Do you let anyone see your rhythm of life? Are you willing to look at someone else's rhythm of life and get close to them? Because if not, you will not be able to work out your salvation. You need to be working out what God is working in. And we need to be doing that in the context of relationships. Now I know that this is even harder. Not just because the way the world defines leadership. But what makes it even harder is that we also live in a culture that just doesn't value the truth very much at all. Many of you know I have three children, and my oldest is Owen, and he's 12, and he's, at the end of this year, he'll turn 13. I can't tell you where the time's gone. It's just flown by, you know? And I've got two girls that are just about to turn 8 and 10 next month. And it's amazing how the time has gone by. I remember a few years ago thinking about being on a college campus and thinking about what I observed and what I see and and then thinking about my own children and thinking about what in the world am I going to do? You know, I'm not that old and yet the world in which I live in, I don't even hardly recognize. It's so different. Even though it hasn't been that long ago since I was in college, it's College is almost completely different than when I was there, even though many things are similar, and some things are exactly the same. So I picked up this book because I thought it might help me understand the world in which I live in. If you're interested in knowing what that is, feel free to talk to me afterwards, because it really helped me understand 
what I'm about to tell you. You see, it dawned on me that my father's, my dad's, and my grandfather's generation always had models. And we live in a time in which that is really not prized at all. Now, now I'm saying this directly to those of you that are younger. Those of you that are like, you know, 30 and down, I really want you to listen to this. I really want you to at least think about this. I can be wrong, and I usually am. But just think about this for a moment. You see, my dad and my grandfather's generation always had role models. They always lived somewhat, I don't mean geographically close, but there was always some connection in which you got to see how older people lived. You had a natural desire to look up to them, and you had a natural inclination to see their rhythm of life. You could see their failures. You could see when they were hurt. You could, at, least from, at least you could observe how their life was going from one stage to another. But the world in which we live in now really wants to press all of you that are young and all of us, they really want to press us into a box where you are exclusively defined by your age group. And the advertising companies have sweetened this deal. Do you realize how all the advertising companies have gotten so specific over the last 20 to 30 years? Almost every commercial on TV is designated for a particular age group. As a young person, you can live your life defining yourself exclusively by your own age group. You want to know what's cool or you want to know what you need to do? You look to your peers and you look to what you should have that they may not have or what you could have that they can't have and you make sure that you get it. And the world wants to press you into this box so that you just live completely defined by those that are your own age. And technology has helped further this as well. Technology is not evil. Our hearts are evil. We like technology. I'm just trying to say one of the downsides of technology is that all of those that are young walk around and they can control all of the information that they have. And they can live their life basically living with other people with the same knowledge pool that they have. What I'm saying is, is that they don't have to ask anybody a question. They ask a computer. Our grandfather and our grandfathers always had to look up. They always had to look to someone else. They always had to ask someone else a question if they wanted to understand something. If they wanted to understand the way that the world works, they could always look to their dad or their mom or their aunt or their grandmother or their grandfather. They had to ask people questions. Not really anymore. If you're 30 or so and under, you really can live your life without asking anyone who's older than you a question. You see, it's, what's, it's what makes things so awkward, culturally speaking. Because those that are young don't know how to relate to the older people, and I mean older than they are. And those that are older have a problem relating to the young because they feel like they're out of touch. And so there's just constant 
bumping up against each other, and, and there's this constant awkwardness. It's why those of you who are young have a really hard time asking people questions. It's why you're struggling, in part, it's why we struggle to figure out what we want to do with our lives. It's why we struggle to understand that you might have to take three jobs before you get the job you want. And it might be longer. Because there's something missing in your life. There's something missing in our life. We're no longer asking questions of those who are older. We live our lives defined by our own age group and peer group. And you see, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So if you thought that working out your salvation did not require you being engaged with others, you're wrong. Working out your salvation is absolutely connected with being involved in people's lives who are different than you, older than you, younger than you. We need each other. We need each other. We need each other. And the world wants to put you into a box. And your heart wants to believe that that's the best place that you can be. And you see, that's not the truth. The truth is, is that the gospel alone can break you out of that box. You might be scared of talking to someone who's older than you. You might be scared of talking to someone who's younger than you. You might not know what to do or what to say. But the gospel is the only thing that can get you out of yourself. The gospel is the only thing that can enable you to watch commercials on TV and say, they are wanting me to do it by a certain product so I can be defined in a certain way. And you can say, no, I am not going to be controlled by what everybody else thinks out there. I can be controlled by God. And what his gospel says. And what his truth says about my life. You see, when Paul mentions Timothy and Epaphroditus, and in general he's talking about leadership, and he's talking about role models and leaders, they're only intended to go so far. There's something that is deeper. You see, role models and leaders that we need are only helpful insofar as as they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Role models and leaders are only important and only helpful insofar as their lives model and illustrate the gospel. And you've got to be close enough to them to see it. You've got to be close enough to someone to see it. Unless you're close with people, you will never be able to work out what God is working in. Because you working out is anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ. And leaders and role models are only supposed to point you to him. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, you see, there is no salvation to work out. Without the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection, you have nothing to work out. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you don't just have forgiveness. 
You have a status before God of not guilty, of righteousness. And you have power. The death and resurrection of Jesus give you power. They give you power to work out what God is working in. That's why you can never hear this, work out your salvation, as being disconnected from the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look how this section starts in verse 12. Therefore, you see, working out your salvation in the following verses, 12 through 30, only makes sense insofar as it's connected to Jesus and his death and resurrection. Remember this? Jesus existed in the form of God. Jesus is deity. He is everything that is divine. He is God. But he didn't consider equality with God something that he was going to clutch tightly to. So you know what he did? He humbled himself. He made himself nothing. You talk about engaging with people. He left heaven and he came to earth. And he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, not by subtraction. He emptied himself by adding human form. He took on humanity. He became a man. And he was perceived as a man. Everyone looked upon him and saw him as a man. And you know what he did as a man? He became obedient. Obedient to death. Even a death on the cross. And you know what happened as a result of that? God highly exalted him. And he gave him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether they're in heaven or on earth or below the earth, that every knee should bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And all of that, his death and resurrection, all of that, his humiliation and being exalted, all of that is to the glory of God. You see, it's impossible to live a blameless life if you're not connected to Jesus. It's impossible to live a life without grumbling and complaining without Jesus. Because we're going to grumble and complain and our lives are not going to be blameless. We're not always going to hold fast to the word. That's why we need Jesus. You can never think of work out your salvation as disconnected from Christ. One man that I like to read said it this way. Run, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better hope the gospel brings, for it bids me fly and it gives me wings. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. Maybe it doesn't connect. I don't know. Maybe this will. Many of you know that I love my dad. Many of you know that I'm very close with my dad. And yes, as I get older and as he gets older, things change. My relationship to my parents change. Perspective changes. The way that I look back over how I was raised changes. The way that I look at my parents now is different from when I was in my 20s. And you all remember, I've told you before about our Sunday afternoon naps. 
After worship, we would come home and we would eat, and then we would take a nap on the living room floor on the den. And I used to always beat my brother to the floor. You remember this? I would make sure I was on the floor before he was. And if he got there before I did, I'd drag him away, and I would get on the left side of my dad. Because I always wanted to put my head on my dad's chest, on the left side, his left side. Because I always wanted to hear dad's heart. And I always wanted to hear him breathe. And I wanted to breathe in the same cadence that he did. Because I loved him so much. And I knew him. And I've told you all that before and there's more. You see, every day I live my life, I know that my dad loved me. He loved me whether he was present. He loved me if he was gone. He loved me if I was present. He loved me if I was away at school. It's true, he wrote me a handwritten letter every week that I was in college. Sometimes two. Every week he was communicating with me. I knew that he loved me whether I was there or not. I knew that he loved me whether I sinned or whether I was behaving. I knew that it didn't matter how badly I sinned that he would not stop loving me. I knew that his love for me was through the truth. Dad never loved me more than the truth. He always loved me through the truth. So he always looked at my life and whatever was going on through the lens of what God says about me and what God says about my sin and what God says about Jesus. And he always had time for me. Even if he was busy, he would say, not now, but we will in the future. He always had time and made time. And I knew what he did for me was for my good, even if it hurt. And let me tell you, there were lots of times where it hurt a lot. And sometimes it was the disappointment. And sometimes it was the burn on the backside. I knew that he loved me. And in the midst of all of that, he gave me space to live. In the midst of all that, I had space to make my own decisions. I had space to make mistakes. I had space to make my own choices and live with the consequences of my choices. And he was always supportive. He prayed for me, and I was in his thoughts. You see, I got to live my life out of that. Was my dad perfect? No. Did dad make mistakes? Yes. He still does. But I got to live my life out of what he was for me. My life was a response to what my dad was for me. I got to live my life as a response to dad's disposition toward me. And to me. You see, my dad didn't only tell me how to live, he showed me how to live. And he formed me to live it. This is how the gospel works. This is how the gospel works in our lives. It doesn't matter if you had a horrific father. As great as my dad was, I've already told you he wasn't perfect. But your Heavenly Father is. 
This is the way the gospel works. We are working out what the heavenly, what our heavenly Father is working in. And we were never made to obey and to live our lives out of fear. We were created, we were made to work and to obey out of love. You were made to work and to live because you know that God loves you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this section in Philippians 2. It reminds us that we are supposed to work out our salvation because you're working in. And at times, oh Lord, we live our lives as if it's just all me and I just need to do this and I just need to get going. And other times we live our life as if we can't do anything and we won't do anything. But Lord, you invite us to recognize that we are able to work out because of your disposition toward us in Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you have lived and died and that you have been raised from the dead so that we would have forgiveness and a standing that is righteous and power to live our lives. God, would you help us to realize in our lives that if we're not working out our salvation, being engaged with other people, that there's a breakdown somewhere. We have somehow forgotten that you love us. Would you help us, Lord, to recapture the power and significance of the death and resurrection of our Savior? And would you keep us, Lord, from wanting to be defined by simply those of our own age? Would you build up your church here? Would you build up your church everywhere so that old and young alike are laboring together, loving Jesus together? For your glory's sake, I pray. Amen.